You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to another live program here. You're listening to Voice of Islam radio station, and this is the Drive Time Show. Um, today you're joined by myself, Safir, and uh, Salman uh, Kamar here in the studio. Uh, we're broadcasting live from London, and uh, as always, you know, if you've been listening to the Drive Time Show regularly, then you know that we have two topics prepared for you today as well. Salman, how are you doing? Alhamdulillah, very well. Just um, feeling the change in weather. It's getting yes. colder outside. Yes, yes, of course. Wet. Yes. How about you? Yeah, all good, all good. We were just talking about the World Cup, actually, which is going to come yes. very soon in a yes. few days, and uh, obviously happening in a place which is uh, much warmer. And uh, mm-hmm. it's going to be some interesting, uh, interesting matches. So we're going to talk about World Cup, uh, but not today, uh, next week, uh, when that comes. Uh, today we have two topics. Uh, Salman, we're going to look at um, philosophy and um, how philosophy uh, as a subject, as a you know way of life, uh, as well as um, what Islam says about philosophy, you know, whether we, ca- we should take our philosophy, how we should we approach philosophy in different subjects. Um, we're going to talk about that. And then in the second hour, we're going to talk about Children's Day, uh, which is um, uh, coming up um, as uh, uh, in the second hour as, as our second topic. But first of all, I think today is um, the World Philosophy Day. Uh, I'm sure many people didn't know that, mm-hmm. that today is uh, marked as a World uh, Philosophy Day and uh, UNESCO is marking it with a series of events around the title of forthcoming human, trying to make it relevant. So, um, what what comes to your mind when we talk about World Philosophy Day? Surely, <coughs> it's not something that we discuss every day, is it? We don't, and uh, I think it's sad that we don't talk about philosophy as much. Um, in in my personal view, something which is still very re- relevant, but I think um, the general opinion in regards to philosophy is may be changing um, over the past couple of decades, especially with um, the, 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 the rise of um, science and scientific um, <clears throat> progress yeah. that, that we as human beings have made over the past, let's say, 20, 30 yeah. to maybe even 50 years. So um, philosophy may be um, on, on the tendency of going down. And I mean, I'm just thinking like, you know, school children or, ch- you know, teenagers looking to go into a field i i don't think there are many who are yeah. going to be thinking you know what i'm going to study philosophy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know nowadays the world is such that you know the, the it's not something that um i guess uh it's a very in or very you know trendy to 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 look into philosophy or yeah. to th- to think that deeply whereas the attention span of many young people is uh, very very short uh, maybe not looking at you know th- thinking too much or uh, focusing too much on philosophy yes absolutely and i think also the the fact that we have be- as 
in general as human beings we have become very materialistic um we don't have much time as you say to to think about all that but what we do think about is um how to be as practical as possible mm. um how to make maybe the most money in in the shortest way possible yeah so that's where our youth and generally um the population is thinking towards yeah. rather than actually sort of sitting back and just thinking about life in general yeah i th- i think that's where we've sort of lost it over yeah. the past few years and maybe that's that's like a normal thing that you know in a certain age you do look for short fixes or you don't think in in that sense maybe you know sitting here we at 32 35 you know that sort of age we're thinking okay you know now let's let's think more about life and mm-hmm. and the future mm-hmm. and now mm-hmm. that you have kids and and all that um so maybe it's like an age thing but that's uh that's what we're going to discuss today i mean philosophy for for us certainly is is very important yes um yes. you know we're going to talk about the islamic aspect of this as well uh but in 20 uh, in 2010 in t- 2010 uh, professor uh, stephen hawkins famously claimed that philosophy is dead so that's like 10 years ago um it could no longer keep up with scientific advances um he boasted saying that scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge was he right or can it still provide solutions to some of the big problems we are facing today climate change poverty mass immigration uh, mass migration conflicts etc um so salman shall we shall we look at a verse of the holy quran maybe that would give us a little bit of you know um head start into thinking about philosophy sure um you see the holy quran in chapter 30 verse 9 states um do they not reflect in their own minds allah has not created the heavens and the earth and all that is between the two but in accordance with the requirements of wisdom and for a fixed term but many among men believe not in the meeting with their lord so obviously the, the holy quran is definitely encouraging for human beings to 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 ponder mm. to think um to to make your make out your own conclusions uh, about what you see and what you feel in this world yeah and i think um <coughs> if we read the holy quran you know on a on a regular basis when you when you read the holy quran throughout the holy quran you will come across verses where allah the almighty sort of you know uh, addresses the reader or, or we directly mm-hmm. saying mm-hmm. that have you not thought about this have mm-hmm. you not seen what has happened mm-hmm. in the past uh don't you think allah is the creator you know all of these things richly encouraging us to focus on thinking uh, yeah. and and philosophy and philosophy is basically the study of the fundamental nature of knowledge mm-hmm. reality existence especially when considered as an academic discipline Yeah. And it can also be explained as a theory or attitude that acts as guiding principles for behavior. So, I think as as a Muslim, and if we look at the Islamic side of this, uh, certainly philosophy is very central because yeah. when you read the Holy Quran, when you study the Islamic teachings, it makes you think. Yeah. It makes you ponder. It makes you imagine um, how your life should be. Um, looking, you, you kind of. Um, think about the uh, the, um, uh, the the results of your actions basically yes. you think yes. about okay if i do this what are the results going to be if i do this then you know what's going to be the result so islam actually encourages uh, philosophy thinking uh, and thinking critically as well 
Absolutely. I mean, um, one of the books of uh, the founder of the community, Mr. Ghulam Ahmed Qadiani, um, is actually titled The Philosophy of the Teachings of Islam. Yeah. Um, a, I mean, a, a marvelous piece of yeah. writing. And I would really encourage all of our listeners, um, those that, that have read it before, read it again. Because, I mean, I, I can tell you from experience that even reading that book maybe three to five times, you will still be finding new um, um, points to 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 take away from every yeah. time you really read that book so um as you said philosophy is very central science can obviously give you um a certain way of doing things but it is essentially philosophy that 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 puts that feel to it right yeah i mean <clears throat> from 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 where i see it for uh, especially within islam mm. Um, it is the Islamic philosophy that teaches us to to be kind, mm. um, to look after those in need, etc., etc. Mm. That's not something science can ever teach me, yeah. because in science, two plus two is four, and th- exactly. that 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 basically is yeah. it. Yeah. But then comes philosophy, which which goes beyond our basic human mathematics mm. and shows us that there is so much more to life than just yeah. science. And that's something that's very interesting because uh, Allah the Almighty says in the Holy Quran that we have created man in the best shape. Mm-hmm. And with the best, you know, capabilities of, yeah. of distinguishing between what is right, what is wrong. I mean, we're clearly there is a difference between animals and and human beings the way they have been created, and this is something that the Quran has has made very clear. And if we keep that in mind, um, the you know the the the, the philosophy, uh, or you could say that uh, the ability to 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 think and and the ability to really uh connect to the spiritual side of life mm. is also a god-given gift isn't it Absolutely. that has come through another important thing that we find in islam which is ilham or revelation yes yes it actually reminds me the the reason why i said that is because it reminds me of very like famous very well known you know you know also the the phrase um uh, by the promised messiah that akal khud andi hai agar nayar ilham na that the philosophy or uh, wisdom or, or the thinking of a man is is blind in itself exactly. Uh, exactly unless we do not have the 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 light of revelation which god himself like puts, puts into man absolutely yes and that revelation we we've talked about revelation uh, i think long time ago as well but revelation is not limited to um uh, you know uh, say the Quran being revealed on the Holy Prophet Sallallahu but revelation is also something that God has put into uh, insects for example like the yes. bee knows that yes. it needs to collect honey and you know yeah. that example is from the Holy Quran um, and uh, and also the the, the ideas that the inventions <coughs> that these uh, scientists come up with you know some of the famous ones you know that also is 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 you know the Prophet Sallallahu has uh, explained the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has explained that is a type of revelation that has come from God. Exactly. So, so philosophy in in that sense, you know, is is in, not only encouraged but it's actually a way f- to is a result of God's revelation to to mankind. Um, so we've talked about religion and philosophy. Um, <coughs> the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim <coughs> community, His Holiness Azamiza Ghulam Ahmed, uh, may peace be upon him, uh, categorically. Um, you know, said that some philosophers in this day, uh, erring uh, philosophers, philosophers who are making the mistakes, have never been able to grasp the pure unity of God, mm-hmm. inasmuch as they are afflicted with pride, arrogance, and conceit, 
and pure unity demands the negation of the self. Such negation cannot be effected unless a person sincerely believes that is uh, a divine gift in which his effort has no part. So philosophy is good, but it can also be bad if you put um, your own ego in and you totally forget the element of God and, you know, uh, Absolutely. I mean, look, l- we have the example of, of, of the most basics of things. Right, we we talked about the World Cup at the beginning, mm. and uh, we are not going to be discussing the World Cup. Just as an example, there is eleven players on the pitch, and then there is the coach on mm. the sideline, right? But then one oh, player of the eleven decides to just go his own way because he thinks. I don't that, know who you're talking about. Oh, let's, let's, <laughs> no, I, I, let's, I was saying. Let's that. call him Cristiano Ronaldo, <laughs> no. for example, right? <laughs> but so he decides to just do his own thing yeah, on the pitch. Yeah. This is going to harm the team. He is not able to 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 pull the whole team alone. He has to go um, in a in in a certain pattern, right? Mm. He has to play a certain way. Similarly, in every way of life, we have to admit that we as human beings are limited, and we have we also uh, always have to seek the guidance of Allah the Almighty. Of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, of the Quran, of Hadith, and it is only then that a human being can succeed in any field of life, mm. right? Other than that, you you try doing your own thing, and that will lead you straight to atheism. Yeah, right. So that's where science becomes very very dangerous. That's when uh, Professor um, Stephen uh, Hawking, when he says that scientists yeah. are the 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 torchbearers mm. in this day and age is eventually going to lead to complete and utter atheism, mm. completely forgetting the divinity of Allah the Almighty. Mm. That is when science becomes dangerous. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So similarly, even, even philosophy, I mean, even <clears throat> within Islam, we've had philosophers over the past centuries um, who have sort of gone their own way. Mm. Staying within Islam, they still went a bit outside the, the Islamic remit. Um, they created their own cults if you, if you want to call it that way, right? People started following them, but mm. they then were uh, eventually led astray. Yeah. So Allah the Almighty simply states that, look, you can do whatever you want. Just keep in mind that your guidance always should be the Almighty God because He knows best. Yeah. As long as you do that, you'll be good to go. Mm. And I think you, you mentioned earlier, it was a great point actually, that, um, that, you know, science is uh, is very you know straightforward in, in a way that it would just give you explanation of the physical, right? Mm-hmm. As mm-hmm. as best as it can. And science yes. is constantly evolving; it's it's updating. Sometimes there's one scientific discovery. You know, scientists say, "Oh, black hole is like this," mm-hmm. but the next few years they might change their opinion. Also, yes. no, we have better cameras. We can actually see now that it actually not like this; it's mm-hmm. like this. Mm-hmm. So it keeps changing. Whereas um the religious aspect or the spirituality is something that that is a whole different dimension mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. if you just rely on science um in terms of the development of a human being then it 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 will completely you know neglect the moral aspect as well which yes. which only religion really yeah. can 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 bring um we're going to listen to one audio clip um where the question um should muslims study the works of uh, poets and philosophers um has been asked and the answer to that uh, is given in this uh, um audio so let's have a listen to that 
uh, is this verse indicating that it that we shouldn't uh, or that it's not worthy for for our time to study the works of major poets and philosophers because uh, their works and their lives are themselves contradictory because this also seems to be true for western philosophers that they rarely lived what they what they preached uh, is this an indictment of all philosophy that is outside the religious tradition and does it mean that we, we should see, when I read this to you then the answer is already there hal unabbihukum ala man tanazzalu shayateen tanazzalu ala kulli affaqin athim shall I tell you on whom the satans descend they descend on all liars and sinful people so you should not follow the liars and the sinful people that is all you can infer from this you understand well the point is that when you study something you do not always study to follow it sometime you study to rebut it Sometimes you study with selective attitude, you pick out the very best and leave the worst. So to study is not forbidden. It is in fact uh, very profoundly uh, respected in, in Islam, so much so that Ahadur said that for the sake of gaining knowledge, even if you go to the boundaries of China, to, to China, you go and learn what you can. Now China at that time was farthest than anything, you know, anything known to the man in Arabia. That was like uh, going to moon. So that is the attitude towards learning. Another thing which you must remember is that once Ahadur said, Al-Hikmatu Do'allatul Mu'mine, that a word of wisdom or wisdom itself is uh, uh, the lost property of a believer. Now, when you see your lost property in the hands of your enemies or some filthy, dirty people, you don't hesitate to own it and repossess it because you found it uh, in a bad place. So, wisdom, wherever it is, belongs to you. You must not be ashamed of it. So, these poets you are referring to, these philosophers, they also have some words of wisdom. It's impossible to condemn them as a, in totality as something totally wrong. So that is why your attitude should be much more broad-minded than this. Exactly. A very good uh, point made by uh, the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Azimiz Tahir Ahmed, who mentioned that you know learning from from literally everything is is uh, apart from of the Islamic teaching. In fact. Uh, that uh, wisdom is like a lost property of a Muslim. Wherever he finds wisdom, he should he should embrace it, and therefore be broad-minded in terms of studying, in terms of learning. Um, but for for philosophers who remember God, um, anything is possible. The Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that whoso undertook a journey for the purpose of acquiring knowledge, um, God would open for him the way to it, and the same. Uh, at the same time, o- also open uh, way to paradise. So another encouragement to seek knowledge, uh, you know, obviously do deep thinking, uh, reflection, all of that. And then also the, the common um, uh, saying of the Prophet that it's an ob- obligation to attain uh, education, knowledge for both Muslim men and women. 
So Islam encourages, uh, you know, seeking knowledge, uh, thinking, philosophy, all of that that we are talking about today. Um, Salman, uh, we'll go to our first guest. We have uh, Peter Ad- Adamson with us, uh, who is professor of uh, ancient medieval Islamic philosophy in uh, in München in Germany. Um, and also host of a history of a philosophy podcast. So, um, Professor, um, thank you very much, Peter, for, for Professor Peter, for joining us. How are you doing? My pleasure. I'm very good. Happy to be here. Good. Um, you have uh, plenty of uh, of knowledge in 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 Islamic philosophy, uh, according to your uh, experience. Um, in um, in uh, 1195, Ibn Rushd was uh, exiled, and his books were burnt. Uh, by the caliph of the time um could you explain the background what happened why 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 were his books were his books burnt yeah i mean he actually was for a long time in favor so we're talking about a period in um the history of andalus so the of muslim spain mm-hmm. um where the almohads were in charge of the region and he was actually a very highly placed person at court In fact, um his commentaries on Aristotle, which we'll probably get on to mentioning in a minute, were even supposedly written for the um the royal family of the Almohads, but then he lost favor and so basically due to political intrigue, he was kicked out and his books were burned. Um but I think it's important to bear in mind that this is not like evidence that there was some kind of general opposition or hostility to philosophy on the part of muslim rulers either in al-andalus or anywhere else um we don't actually find that in the medieval islamic period um mostly philosophers kind of got on with what they were doing and they did just fine and no one bothered them unless they annoyed someone for some other reason and that's what happened here mhm mhm um so how, how was um rushd's claim that the soul will be resurrected without the same body received by muslims and the christians at the time yeah okay well, so but maybe by the way we should say something about his name so his his as it were his real name is ibn rushd but people may have heard about him it may have heard of him under the name of averroes because that's what he was called in latin mm-hmm. so often that's used in english but i like calling him <laughs> ibn rushd like mm-hmm. you just did so he has a very controversial view on the soul which is also very complicated his his ideas about the soul changed during his life but his final view is that like a lot of other philosophers actually in the islamic world he thought that the afterlife that we'll enjoy after our bodily death is purely intellectual because that's the part of your soul that can survive the death of your body right so the idea is that at least according to these philosophers you don't use any part of your body like you don't use your brain to think or any other part of your body to think you just have this immaterial activity which is thinking so he inferred from that that when your body dies you could go on thinking and that's all you could do right mm-hmm. um the controversial thing so actually i mean that already went be controversial right but he went on and said something even more controversial which is that the thing that makes you and me and everyone else different from each other is our bodies right so you're over there in england i'm over here in munich and the reason we're kind of separated from each other is because we have different bodies but if you only became this kind of thinking disembodied intellect then there'd be no difference between one intellect or one mind and another mind and so he said well that's that's fine we all share the same mind 
Mm-hmm. Um, again, this is very complicated, like his full explanation for why he believed this. Yeah. But this is something that got a lot of criticism, actually not so much in the Islamic world, but in the um, Latin Christian tradition. So theologian philosophers like Thomas Aquinas were very heavily critical of this idea. Okay. And you can imagine why, right? Because mm-hmm. it basically means that you know, you don't have any individual immortality after death. Right, right. So in what sense did uh, Ibn Rushd promote the idea of uh, collective consciousness? Well, that's exactly what we're talking about, right? So that would be another way of describing it. So the idea would be that when you're thinking about something, yep. so suppose you're like a biologist and you're studying the nature of giraffes, which is always my favorite example. So what you're grasping there is just the true nature of giraffes. So that's like what's in your mind. And suppose I'm a biologist too. So I'm also thinking about giraffes as it happens. So now we're thinking the same thought, namely we're both thinking about the nature of giraffes. And he was so keen to make sure that you and I would be thinking about the same thoughts right. that he said, well, that's actually just one mind thinking about the nature of giraffes. Mm. The reason why you and I experience thinking about giraffes and someone else might not <coughs> is that um, this sort of single mind is like using the experiences and memories and imagination in your brain and in my brain, but it's not using other people's brains to do that because they haven't, you know, gone and looked at a bunch of giraffes. So something I often say is that it's like, imagine you have kind of like a server in, in inter- on the internet, yeah. like in cyberspace, and you have a bunch of computers in different places, mm-hmm. and they're loading information up to the cloud, right? Right, okay. So the cloud is like this this universal intellect which everyone's sharing and they can like access it if they've got the right kind of computer see and, that uh, that makes more sense that that was a, i think a better example than the giraffes because <laughs> giraffes actually made me really conf- you know confused but but this was good uh, this I, well, you know this helped I mean me that, understand. like when you think about so what i mean is that when you think about a specific thing like yeah, a giraffe yeah what you're doing is you're uploading information about the giraffe into the cloud right Right. So any two people who are thinking about giraffes, they're both like feeding the information up there mm. and then they're sharing that kind of intellectual activity. That's mm. the idea. Okay, very interesting. Uh interesting. Um before we we go on to the next um did uh, you you did mention that there was uh, obviously people who were uh maybe obviously not happy with with all this uh, all these ideas coming. Um mm-hmm. But in in what way did Ibn Rushd challenge um, other Sufi thinkers, particularly uh, Al-Ghazali? Yeah, so he's a really key thinker. So Al-Ghazali, who lives about a century earlier, um, he died in actually 1111 of the Common Era, so that's easy to remember, which is nice. Um, and uh, Ibn Rushd died in 1198, so almost a century later. Right? Mm. And Al-Ghazali is very famous for all kinds of reasons. He's a very important theologian. But one reason he's famous, especially among people who are interested in philosophy, is that he wrote a work called The Incoherence of the Philosophers, in which he attacked philosophers in general, but in particular this one philosopher, Ibn Sina, often called Avicenna. Again, that was the name in Latin. And Ibn Sina uh, taught a lot of things that Ghazali considered to be heretical. Actually, one of them was the same idea that you um, that you don't have a resurrection of the body you just live on as a disembodied intellect although he didn't have that idea about like the communal mind that everyone shares he just think, thinks that each person's soul survives the death of their body but never gets a body back later on so there's no resurrection 
So for that reason, and because Ibn Sina taught the eternity of the world and some other reasons, Ghazali was very, very critical of Ibn Sina, and even described him as being an apostate from Islam. Mm -hmm. And Ibn Rushd reacted to this. So remember, Ghazali wrote a work called The Incoherence of the Philosophers, right? So Ibn Rushd writes a work called The Incoherence of the Incoherence, where he goes through and quotes everything Ghazali said and refutes him one step after another. And um, again, this is obviously all very complicated, what, he, what they're arguing about. But he, for example, shows that um, philosophers had very good reasons to think that the universe might be eternal, and that as long as God creates or, or like is the cause of the universe, even if it's eternal, that is fine. Like a Muslim can believe that. Um, and just in general, he responds to Ghazali and tries to uh, sort of undo this attack on philosophy that Ghazali had done a century earlier. Right. Mm -hmm. um, lastly, one thing um, I want to know is in regards to philosophers. I mean, did Ibn Rushd believe anyone can be a philosopher or was it an avenue, I mean, only open for some people in his opinion? That's actually a really interesting question. So I think the, the answer is probably like yes and no. So in principle, he thinks that every human has a, an intellect and every human has the potential to do philosophy because, you know, all humans are rational and they're capable of abstract thought and so on. But I think he also assumed that in real life, like practically speaking, very, very few people would have the kind of talent and opportunity also to do this. So remember, we're talking about like the 12th century here. Mm -hmm. so this would have been a period where the vast, vast majority of people were illiterate for a start mm -hmm. and also were very busy doing things like, you know, farming in the fields. Mm -hmm. And he and he thought that to do, be a really good philosopher, you needed to, like, go make a very close study of Aristotle. So that was his idea of what philosophers should be doing. And so just, I mean, so if you say, when you say, did he think anyone could be a philosopher? That's sort of like saying, can anyone be a nuclear physicist? So... Mm -hmm. He would, so he would have thought that was a, about the same kind of questions. So he might say, well, kind of in principle, like any human could, might have the capacity to do it. Um, he even, in fact, thought that women were capable of this kind of thing because he was influenced by Plato's suggestion that women can also be philosophers. Um, mm -hmm. And in fact, there's actually this great passage where he says that it's a, it's a real shame how we're wasting all the talent of all the women in all these Muslim cities mm -hmm. because we're not exploiting their, their potential. Right. But um, I think despite that kind of open-minded attitude in general, he would have also assumed that philosophy was a very elite activity, which only a very few people would be able to participate in, mm. which, of course, was true at the time. But maybe nowadays he would think differently. Well, wow, that's very interesting. I mean, um, I know we did say last question, but both, just before we, we let you go, I'm quite interested in knowing actually how, how you yourself, um, you know, came to 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 take up um you know islamic philosophy what what interested you oh that's a nice question uh well basically i mean of course it's a long story mm. <laughs> but it, basically i was interested in latin medieval philosophy and that's what i wanted to do my work on like when i was a graduate student and i was sort of thinking about how greek ancient philosophy was sort of received in later periods and then I thought, well, actually, this didn't just happen in Latin. It also happened in Arabic. And mm -hmm. if I just learned Arabic, 
there'd be a lot of stuff there that not very many people are working on or know about. And that would be really cool if I could work on that. Mm. And so I was young enough and maybe foolish enough to think, ah, well, I'll just learn Arabic then. <laughs> that should be easy, right? So I, so I went off and learned Arabic with some difficulty. And um, yeah, having made that investment of time and energy, I was pretty committed to continuing to work on it. But then I just sort of got so, I, I mean, I was just so amazed at how rich and long-lasting and deep the whole tradition of philosophy mm. in the Islamic world is, yeah. and so I kind of never looked back. But it was really just kind of wanting to look at how Greek philosophy was received both in the Islamic world and in the Christian European uh, region. That's really how I got into it. Wow, that's uh, that's quite an incredible journey. Um, I think we can say Jazakallah. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Thank for you for your time. On. Thank you, yep. Rita. Have a great day. Bye. You too. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number to call. You can also tweet at uh, Radio Voice of Islam, uh, Voice of Islam UK, if you wish to send in your comments on Twitter or on Instagram. Uh, one thing that came to my mind is, what if Ibn Rushd and Ghazali had come? Um, I mean, if Ibn Rushd had come at a time where where Ghazali was actually there, hmm. and Ghazali came after Ibn Rushd. Maybe Rushd would have opposed Ibn Sina and Ghazali would have supported him afterwards. You can never know. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, that, that's something, maybe. Yeah. And uh, it, w- it would also be interesting to know um, what sort of background these people all came from. Mm. You know, because I, I believe that where where you come from probably influences your philosophy of, of life as well. Yeah, yeah, right? definitely. I think obviously because of the Islamic culture and there was so so much emphasis on, on libraries, uh, books, mm. um, uh, study <coughs> circles, and in that environment, like yeah. even in, you know, we're talking, you know, our guest uh, Professor Peter talked about, you know, Andalusia. And, yes, and, yes. But that also, you know, was prevalent in Baghdad. That was also prevalent in Syria and, and even before then in Medina, Mecca as well, mm-hmm. um, where people would be encouraged to sit together and, and uh, read. the. And, and that also comes from the Quran, wasn't it? I mean, the Quran and the saying and the collection of Ahadith, the sayings of the Holy Prophet that were then, you know, kind of uh, commentated on. There's so many yeah. commentaries, right, yes, for, which absolutely. has come as a result of that. So many... Um, uh, saints as well, uh, if, mm-hmm. if that's the right word to use, uh, reformers who yes. came over time, who, who were in a way great philosophers in the sense great of thinkers. their yes, thinking. Yes, yes. Yes, absolutely. Thinking about, and then also <coughs> sometimes there there were differences in terms of thinking of some yes. ulemas or some uh, scholars, uh, philosophers. One, <coughs> one, one might have had one opinion, the other one might have seen it from a different light. Absolutely. So yeah, it was a huge, uh, huge... Uh, environment of uh, of seeking knowledge but i think one one key thing that professor um adamson mentioned mm. is in regards to the facilities so as he mentioned that, that you know see most people back then were were focused on their their daily chores um going out to the farm working making sure that there is bread on the table right yeah so at the end of the day philosophy wasn't for everyone then yeah because of their circumstances yeah um so that is also i think a question for our next hour Mm. That we need to make sure that everyone has access to yeah. to to those books and that um, education, etc. But that's probably we'll talk about next hour then. Exactly. Well, zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number to call. Uh, the reason why we're talking about philosophy, if you're just tuning in, is uh, today is the World uh, Philosophy Day, and that's exactly why we're talking about this um, now. 
before we uh, continue with this, um, we, we have um, explained what the um, Islamic uh, understanding of philosophy is. Um, and uh, when we also look at um, the contribution, the Muslim world has made a huge contribution to the subject of philosophy. Um, we talked to Professor uh, Peter just uh, very recently uh, speaking about that. Uh, but taking ancient uh, ancient Greek writings and translating them also was part of the uh, Muslims' effort to uh, help uh, further philosophy, to provide a link and bedrock for later learning. Uh, Ibn Sina, for example, known as the father of modern medicine, uh, because he suggested learning could be enhanced through experimentation and observation. Uh, he didn't just translate the works of Aristotle, but also he built on them. And he maintained an Islamic perspective uh, through his proof of truthful. Um, he um, distinguished between existence and the essence of the soul, leading him to conclude that there has to be a God to change an existence into an essence of a soul. Um, so similarly, we have many other examples of great philosophers. And, you know, on, on, on our uh, radio channel, Voice of Islam, we have... Uh, talked about this and this has mm -hmm. particularly been discussed in detail in, in one of our brilliant programs uh, Living History exactly. um, in, in great detail as well um, I think uh, we should now be going to speak with our next um, guest caller which is Dr. Uh, Vittorio Bufacci if I got the name right um, Senior Lecturer at the Department of Philosophy at the University of uh, University College Cork in Ireland um, Dr. Vittorio thank you very much for joining us and welcome to the Drive Time Show well, hello, and thank you so much for inviting me back. Thank you um, for once again finding time uh, for us and sharing some of your knowledge and expertise with us. Um, so, as you know, today is um, the World Philosophy Day. What does sort of philosophy mean to you, and why do you think that um, we as human beings need philosophy? Right. <clears throat> so that is a very complex question, because uh, what is philosophy is itself a philosophical question. Absolutely, yes. We've here a very long time trying to work out what that is. But <laughs> for the sake of our listeners, we're going to cut some corners. So what I can tell you is what philosophy means to me. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as I'm concerned, philosophy helps me to live with uncertainty. Living with uncertainty um, is something obviously needs to be um, explained, but I really think that this is why everyone needs philosophy in their lives, because at some point we are going to face uncertainty and we have to learn this <coughs> lack of certainty. So I think of philosophy as a method, <clears throat> um, how to make sense of our lives. Um, we, are, we're, we are constantly, all of us, you don't have to be a philosopher, any human being has to come to terms with big questions about the meaning of our lives, of our existence, of our identity. And the only place to start this journey is to question things that are around us. And so it's this, it, this paradox where you have to let go of what you assumed are certainties, and you embrace philosophy, and then you spend your life in search of it, of this uh, again. Mm -hmm. Because philosophy is, is not about having the truth, it's about search for truth. So 
I've been teaching philosophy for the last 25 years, right? And when I meet my students for the first time, first-year students, the very first thing I tell them is, you don't have to agree with anything I say, and in fact, I encourage you to disagree with everything I say, right? Mm-hmm. Shocked. And they complain, right? They come to me and they say, but hold on a second, you're the professor. Isn't it your job? Tell us about the truth and reality and the meaning of life. Mm-hmm. My reply is, no, 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 no. My job is to help you to think about these issues so that you come up with your own views. You come up with your own philosophy of life. And it's the search for those questions that matters. Now, of course, it is okay to to adopt, embrace someone else's philosophy. Well, Mm -hmm. of course. It's okay to be influenced by someone else's views about those questions. Of course we are. But you have to be in control. It's for you to learn who to agree with and why, or who you're going to disagree with and why. Because as far as I'm concerned, philosophy has one enemy, and that's dogmatism. Mm-hmm need philosophy to truly find out who we are, to be true to ourselves, to be authentic. And in that sense, actually, philosophy makes us free. Um, this, this, um, this, friend, this, this German philosopher of the Enlightenment, Immanuel Kant, he said, you have to have the courage to use your own reason. And I think that really captures what philosophy is, at, at least for me, because it really takes a lot of courage to <coughs> ask, and it takes even more courage to let go of dogmatic certainty. Mm-hmm. But we have to learn to trust ourselves, and we have to learn to trust the reason, because when we do that, we actually become free. And so, with the question, what is philosophy and why it matters, I think of philosophy as a force of freedom in a very, very personal way. Right, right, absolutely. Um, So what were you saying essentially is that philosophy is obviously freedom and the the example that you gave of, of your students sort of shows us also that we as human beings are limiting ourselves from, from free thought, isn't it? Yes. Because, you see, forms of dogmatism are very convenient because it's a way of saying, well, I don't have to think about this. I'm just going to go along with what I'm being told. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's fine. It's convenient. But actually, at a deep level, it's un- unsatisfactory. And so learning philosophy is important because you actually learn to, to think with your own head. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you might, of course, you read some philosopher and you agree with them, and that's fine, or there are people in your community that you agree with, and it's fine. But you have to know why you agree with them. Absolutely. And that, that takes training, mm-hmm. and it takes discipline, and it takes courage. But I cannot imagine living without that, that element of, of doubt, um, which is difficult, 
and uncomfortable. But without it, I, I don't think we know who we are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, Dr. Uh, uh, Vittorio, in, in, in your book, Everything Must Change, um, you argue that philosophy can help us cope with the loss faced by many as a result of, of, of the recent pandemic. Um, how, how would you um, say that can sort of work? Yes. So that book <clears throat> I published last year, um, it's still one of the very few books, um, monographs written on COVID by a philosopher. Mm-hmm. And, I was, and I wrote it during the first lockdown um, because they, I realized that there were some very big questions that were coming our way. Mm-hmm. And the only way I could make sense of them is through the tool of philosophy, which is the only thing that I'm comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And so if we think back to what it was like in March 2020, mm-hmm. um, and we were actually faced with death. Um, We were forced to think about death. um, And in many ways, it took us by surprise because it came very quickly. And of course, in our modern society, we we don't, you know, we're kind of comfortable. And, you know, of course, we have different circumstances. But all of a sudden, on the radio and television, there was this thing coming and people were dying and we didn't have an answer. And that was frightening to mm. a lot of people. Mm. Now, there's a long tradition in Western philosophy, and this is, actually goes back to the ancient um, Greece, so before Christianity, which teaches us that we should not be afraid of death. Because the moment you fear death, you become slave <clears throat> to death. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that is not something you can control, and so you become a slave to something that is beyond your control. And so this fear of death takes away our freedom. Um, And the absolute fear of death takes away our freedom, absolutely. But this is where philosophy comes in, because actually it's it's quite the opposite. Um, And philosophy teaches us not to be afraid of death, and so during that first lockdown, I was reminded of the writing of this 16th century French philosopher, um, de Montaigne. And he has this wonderful line. He says, well, when you learn how to die, you unlearn how to be a slave. And so the idea is that as far as he was concerned, and I, I took this lesson and I thought about it while we were in the midst of this crisis, because what he meant is that you have to learn to conquer the fear of death. And you do this by actually not running away from it, but by facing up to it, by, by, by comprehending uh, death. By, because when you do that, you actually, and this is de Montaigne, he says, you learn the art of living. And so if we think back about COVID, I think actually there is an there are lessons that we have to learn from, from this awful experience. Mm-hmm. And there is a fundamental lesson, which is, it's not simply that individually we learn the art of living within ourselves, but we learn the art of living together. And I think that's so important, because if, if we learn anything from, from the whole COVID nightmare, is how interdependent we are. 
is how we need one another. It is how we need to trust one another. It's how, in order to flourish, we need to find ways to cooperate with one another. Mm-hmm. And, only, and only if we're able to do that, then, then we become very strong as a society. And we, I think what really was exposed was the weakness of its very selfish individualism. And I think there, there, is a, there's a, there, there is a philosophical lesson here. And you learn that lesson going through this philosophical method mm-hmm. of actually, yes, death is actually at our doors. And what do we do? Well, we learn the art of living together. Absolutely. Um, in, in, in what sense would you say um, philosophy has, has helped us um, to create a more just society? Or maybe how can philosophy potentially help us to create a more just society? Yes, oh no, absolutely. Um, I, I actually think that where there is philosophy, there is also democracy. <clears throat> Because philosophy as a method is about a dialogue. Um, and, and in fact, it's not surprising that in ancient Greece, when philosophers were writing philosophy, it was written in the form of other important because, you know, let's go back to what I said at the start about philosophy being the opposite of dogmatism. You know, a dogma gives us certainty, um, and this is forced upon people. But a dialogue works best when there is respect amongst the parties in the dialogue. And that respect comes from acknowledging a fundamental equality between the parties taking part in the dialogue. And so I actually consider that the method of philosophy, in order to, to work, it really requires an assumption of equality. There's something about philosophy that is powerfully egalitarian. And a just society, I would say, is a society that is egalitarian. So, you know, when I said um, before, you know, I meet my students and I tell them, you can disagree with everything I say. That's because I actually respect their opinion. Mm -hmm. That's because actually I want them to feel that they are my equals intellectually and we have a conversation yes i've read more books than you but at the end of the day we have to have a dialogue and i respect you as an individual with your own views with your own reasons and together we learn and so there is something about philosophy which empowers each and everyone to have a voice and to be listened and to be taken seriously. Anyone and everyone can philosophize. And this is the wonderful thing about philosophy. It's not a question of, oh, I'm a philosopher and therefore I do philosophy. Philosophy is something that everyone does because you cannot go through life without trying to make sense of the big questions. Our existence, our identity, and the fact that everyone necessarily philosophizes, whether they realize it or not, and they have a voice, and this empowering 
method, what it tells us is that actually your voice matters and you ought to be listened to, notwithstanding your race, notwithstanding your gender, notwithstanding your, your sexuality. And so philosophy, mm. because it has this inbuilt egalitarianism, I think it really helps to build a just society. Okay. All right. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Vittorio Facci, uh, Senior Lecturer, Department of Philosophy from the University um, of Cork Island. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure having you on. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number to call. Uh, you can also tweet at uh, Voice of Islam UK. Um, philosophy is uh, for everyone, um, as uh, Vittorio, um, Dr. Vittorio said. Um, and of course, I mean that makes sense. I mean everybody goes through stages in life where they might need philosophy, where they might be interested in philosophy, where they. Uh, might take the help of philosophy to find out or to think about something. Um, in recent years, uh, philosophy is seen as an increasingly specialist subject in European and American education at the forefront of many budget cuts, um, etc. In, in May 2022, UK universities, um, uh, for example, uh, because it doesn't seem to offer value for money or a clear path into career the British Philosophy Association, in an open letter, disagrees with that. They are saying that there are many students studying the subject in universities and schools. Results attest that excellent philosophical research and associated impact can be found in all parts of the higher education sector. Philosophers are transforming societies across the creative industries, across politics and public policy, across medicine and health and beyond. Uh, the last point was a reference to how philosophy helped governments during the last pandemic dealing with the ethical problems of imposing lockdowns, dis distributing the vaccine, even developing the vaccine. Um, for example, the Life of Breath project from Bristol University devised ways to cope with breathlessness and anxiety, but led by a philosopher, uh, Professor Javi Karel, and used philosophical, philosoph philosophical investigations on the experience of illness. So that is one example, but also other examples of mental health, as well as you know, coping with uh, with with grief, uh, coping with the uh, the philosophical you, you know mental aspect as well. You can look at for, of the pandemic. So all of these things um, have uh, been looked at in the philosophical way as well, and it can really help us solve our looming problems going forward. Uh, wealth inequality, for example, the UN reported that the current cost of living crisis has pushed 71 million people into poverty. Wow. Um, and again, all of these questions, you know, about wealth inequality, about uh, justice, all of this requires, you know, some sort of philosophy as well. Absolutely. Um, one thing that I, I mean, really sort of struck stuck with me, uh, what Dr. Uh, Bouvachi said, mm. and I think that also is, is something what Islam says to you that look. You can agree with someone's philosophy, but what you cannot do is have blind faith. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So <clears throat> agreeing with someone or going along with their philosophies is, is, is all good and well, but make sure that you are aware why you are agreeing with that person. 
Don't, uh, don't just follow the person because and uh, that, that's also something uh, what the Holy Quran even states uh, that on the day of judgment when certain people will be asked about their sins they will say well we just followed whatever our forefathers did right mm. so they didn't think for themselves again as the Quran also uh, encourages us that we should ponder about things yeah. and we should make sure that if we are following a certain way of life why we are doing that mm. and if we are agreeing with someone why we are agreeing with yeah. them and only then should we follow that way of life I think that's an excellent point um, on that note um, I think we're going to take a break for the news join us after the news you're listening to Voice of Islam you are listening to the recording of a live show please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Good afternoon. Welcome back to the Drive Time Show here on Voice of Islam Radio Station. Uh, you're listening to myself, Safir and uh, Salman. Uh, we are talking about philosophy, and, and the reason why we're talking about philosophy is that today is World Philosophy Day. Now, we talked to a few guests, and um, it's been an excellent uh, you know, exchange and uh, um, conversation that we've been having with our guests um, uh, on, on philosophy, on the different aspects of philosophy and the importance of philosophy. Um, when we look at philosophy in terms of education, as we've already discussed as well, um, it helps um, us develop our independent thinking skills. Um, for example, we looked at the verse of the Holy Quran as well, where it says, do not, do they not reflect in their own minds? Obviously, very relevant in today's world of, uh, you know, where we have lots of uh, issues, uh, sometimes conspiracy theories and false facts. For example, we know well about the Alex Jones uh, issue where um, this uh, famous uh, you know, person who uh, runs his old channel caused a uh, great uh, deal of pain and heartache to families of school gun shooting uh, victims, um, their families in Texas, uh, where 20 children and six staff members had been killed back in 2012, 2012. And Alex used his website uh, to kind of spread misinformation about the thing and that the shooting hadn't taken place. Obviously, it was a long trial as well. And um, he was punished also, told uh, to pay compensation. Um, however, his followers, not thinking for themselves, but becoming duped by his allegations, went on to then harass the families of the victims, threatening them of grievous uh, sort of uh, crimes. So... Philosophers, on, on, on one hand, can teach us how to use our minds positively with reason and logic and not to follow others' uh, fears or restrictions, something that scientific progress cannot do as um, you know Stephen Hawkins bo- said about as well. And then some philosophers, of course, have called uh, for it to be taught in schools more widely. Uh, professor Angie Hobbes, professor of the public understanding of philosophy at the University of Sheffield, has said that increased philosophy provision in both primary and secondary schools can do so much to help young people from all backgrounds uh, actually utilizing their potential and live a fulfilled, flourishing lives. Now, we're going to speak to our third guest uh, we have for this uh, topic. We have uh, Peter uh, Worley, who uh, is co-founder of the Philosophy Foundation, 
um, here to talk to us. Uh, good afternoon, Peter. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. Yeah. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, for for most people, uh, philosophy seems a very remote thing. You know, it's it's not something that they are particularly interested in, if I uh, were to say that. Um, how would you justify this as a career choice uh, to young people? Well, interestingly, I was at a school just a couple of days ago in which a girl came up to me, six, getting ready to go to university, and she said, I want to be a philosopher. She said, but all the other people over there, they're all scientists, and they said that I'm not going to have a job, and I'll be living on the streets in a cardboard box. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. So I said to her, I said, actually, interestingly, there was some research done some years ago that I once read on Stephen Law's blog, Mm-hmm. Um, and it looked into graduates' uh, uh, employability, and I think it looked into the different graduates after five years and then again after ten. And interestingly, the most employable uh, uh, among the most employable graduates were philosophy graduates. Really? Um, yeah, mm-hmm. they stayed in employment. Now, interestingly, they didn't all necessarily—they uh, weren't all in philosophy as a vocational thing—but they had left university with a philosophy degree and. You know, to, in one way or another, they were employed, mm. and this—this, this, I mean, there's lots of things that this may or may not suggest, but probably my guess is that there's a sense in which philosophers have transferable skills. They have skills of, of you know, of being able to work things out, of, of, to analyze things, to solve problems, and so on. And I think that you know, whatever they go into, whether it's publishing, law, or philosophy, um, usually academic philosophy. Uh, then those skills come in handy in all sorts of different ways. So it goes counter to the the uh, general opinion. Um, philosophy is in fact a good option for employability. <laughs> <laughs> all right, um, and I think uh, you, as I said in your introduction, you were co-founder of the Philosophy Foundation. What uh, what does uh, this foundation? Do and and what kind of work do you uh, do you work on in in terms of uh, this? You you mentioned school children as well. Is is there something particular yeah. that you want to talk about? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we the Philosophy Foundation is a registered charity. We've been going. Uh, well, I've been doing this since two thousand and two. Um, the charity's been sort of evolved uh, over the last sort of twelve fifteen years. And we go into schools. We go into primary and secondary schools. We go into prisons. We we've even worked at them the English National Opera. Um, and we go in and we basically facilitate philosophical conversations wherever they're needed. And we also train people in how to question better and how to conduct philosophical conversations. Um, we also we also do philosophical coaching, which is something, you know, on a one-to-one basis where people come to you with life problems and you put those life problems through um, philosophical methods and lenses to help them, to help to see if that can offer anything to them. So yeah, so we do quite a lot of stuff. Um, Peter, in a world of uh, your looming cuts in education, um, where where you know authorities are making choices between heating or running after school clubs, um, you know we, we actually talked about this uh, a couple of days ago as well. Uh, why should philosophy be taught, and um, how can that be you know incorporated in 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 the education sector? Right, it's an interesting question how it should go into the education mm. sector. I mean, should it be sort of centralized and um, part of the core curriculum? I, my feeling is probably not. It's quite nice to keep it somewhat peripheral. Um, also so that it doesn't become t- too subsumed by tests 
like all the other aspects of the curriculum, um, tests and sort of, you know, um, government centralized curricula and stuff like that. I think philosophy by its very nature has to sort of stand outside of all that stuff and allow the children to have a space, a freer space to think and to, 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 to think with each other. Um, so generally speaking, I would, I would encourage that. However, there is a case to be made for philosophy being taken very seriously in schools, as it is in the schools that we've worked in and are still working in, you know, nearly 20 years on from working in them in the first place. And I think it's to do with it, philosophy helps people to think well. A lot of the other the, the, the curriculum um, that they're doing will be teaching them how to be, you know, how to be able to read and write and how to um, be good um, productive. And philosophy enables people to, to think for themselves, to think through uh, with each other. It helps to build communities, but thinking well has to be a good thing. So just the other day, we were in, the, we were in a school helping the scholars prepare for Oxbridge exams. And one of the things that you have to do in an Oxbridge exam, pretty much whatever subject you study, is you will be, you will be given some challenging questions, usually of a philosophical nature. Um, whether it's engineering or biochemistry that you're doing, they're interested in the students that can think well, think on their feet, think round problems. And we might say, okay, well, in which case, surely philosophy and thinking like this is only good for those who are going to go to Oxbridge. But I would make the case that this is the sort of thinking that should be open to everyone. Mm -hmm. Everyone should be taught the kinds of skills that Oxbridge students are being taught and are expected to know. So that everyone has that opportunity to sort of think to think round things for themselves and to think better hmm. and and is there ever a stage in in somebody's life that they can take up uh philosophy or is it is it you know is it uh yeah i mean the question would be you know you could you could take but at any time or, or or is it um not possible at uh at, at different well, stages it says here in my list of questions from you, it just says, is it ever too late to take up an interest in philosophy? Yeah, yeah. I think probably what one might say, uh, when you're dead, perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> of course. But un until then, I think there's absolutely no, it's never too late to start philosophy. Um, because, because, quite frankly, thinking philosophically is about thinking about life. Mm. And while you're living a life, you've got, and Socrates famously said that, that um, that philosophy is about preparing for death. So, you know, what, if that's the case, um, then, you know, one can always um, do that. Um, but, but I think, you know, even though I think there's a case to be made for what he's saying there, it seems to me that the real, the real interest here is, is how we live, mm -hmm. thinking about how we live, and for as long as, for as, long as um, living is a question, for as long as how we live is a question, then thinking philosophically will be of value. Okay. And uh, lastly, we are obviously talking about this because it's World Philosophy Day. How is the Philosophy Foundation marking this uh, important day? Well. Um, by speaking to of us? Course. <laughs> by speaking to you, yes. Um, we're also, we're also uh, running uh, some events today on living, um, uh, how to live, uh, like Epicurus would suggest. So we've, I've been running some online sessions for people to join in on how um, Epicurus can, you know, help us to live better, eat better, shop better, live and die better. Um, so that's been quite fun. Uh, however, what we, of course, do is what we always do. We go into schools, 
we go into prisons, we go into all these different settings, and we continue to do the work that we do. Now, of course, as you well know, times are getting much tougher these days yep. for schools to be able to afford things like this. Um, so it, it is getting a lot harder, and we are a registered charity, so if there's anybody out there who wants to donate, then do go to our website, and you can do so from there and help us to reach more schools, more children, and to continue the work that we do. Brilliant. Uh, wish you all the best in your work, uh, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. Um If you're listening in and if you want to um, talk to us about this, then you're obviously still welcome to do so. You can give us a call. Uh, 0208-687-787 is the number. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about Children's Day as well, um, inclusion for every child. Uh, we're going to look at child poverty in the UK, the rising cost as well as... Uh, as we are all you know aware of uh, but all that is coming up next uh, after a short break you're listening to voice of islam this is the drive time show you're listening to the voice of islam radio Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Asalaamu peace be upon you, and welcome back um, after this short break to the second hour of our live um, drive time show here from the Voice of Islam Radio here in London. You're joined by myself, Salman, and uh, Safir. Um, in the first hour for today, we discussed uh, an, another very important topic, which was philosophy. We looked into various philosophers from the past. We looked at the Islamic angle of things and also from a scientific point of view. Um, for the second hour, we have for you the topic, which is um, Children's Day. Um, and the aim is obviously inclusion for every child. So just to give you a few facts at the beginning of this, there are an estimated 3.9 million children in poverty in the UK. Um Again, 3.9 million children, and that's just the UK. The rising cost of living throughout 2022, especially the housing in London, has had worsening effects in terms of poverty. <clears throat> Families in poverty 
who have many children to feed often end up marrying their daughters off early so that they have one less mouth to feed while some resort to selling their daughters for the dowry and bride price traditions etc etc um child marriage effectively robs girls of their childhood education health and freedom and, and freedom sorry as they are exposed to violence and oppression the lack of education um allows their cycle to continue as they are unable to gain independence and protect themselves mm. um regarding charity and children in need uh, the holy quran again gives us guidance uh, again if you read the holy quran it many times over and over again uh, in numerous places uh, you know um Uh, draws our attention towards fulfilling the rights of people and people includes everyone you know men women children um and one place in the holy quran it says they ask you what uh, should you spend in charity say whatever you spend of good is for parents and relatives <coughs> and orphans and the needy and the traveler and whatever you do of good indeed allah is knowing of it chapter 2 verse 215 so The Holy Quran and uh, the Islamic teachings are such that safeguard uh, men children and for me I think it's it's very alarming for us to to mm-hmm. look at this number that uh, almost 4 million children in the UK um, you know are are in poverty I mean that's not uh, very much acceptable Absolutely not especially if you consider the UK is one of the largest economies in the world Mhm mhm and we're talking about rich uh, countries um this is why you know uh, at the time where islam was introduced the holy prophet muhammad peace and blessings of allah be upon him you know paid so much attention to that and also sometimes would sacrifice his own you know uh food for mm. uh for for anybody who was in need and especially children yeah um and and i think that uh, we we really have to as a society look at this that are we fulfilling the rights of the poorest in the society I mean mm. now just recently today I think the the chancellor uh, announced the the new sort of uh, changes to um to tax upcoming tax mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. to you know uh, tackle the economic crisis yeah. and you know I'm also glad that he he did say that he he wants to protect the most vulnerable yeah whereas uh, you know just eight weeks ago we had another you know um uh another uh, direction and another yes. kind of yes. budget focusing on on cutting the taxes for the rich focusing on the ro- yes. ro- wrong people basically Ex- yeah, yeah i mean yeah for for the wrong cuts basically the wrong yes cuts, absolutely so i mean again it's nothing wrong with being uh, wealthy but of course with wealth comes responsibility islam yeah. says that if you are wealthy then then that's you know a blessing from from god that you have been able to acquire that wealth but the 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 rights in your wealth um there are rights for for people who are less fortunate and um this is why in the system of islam there's the system of zakat as well where mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's not just an ob- ob- uh, you know a, a charity it's it's obligatory yeah. to to give a certain portion of your wealth so it can help uh the the most vulnerable in the society so again um we are going through some very very tough times in terms of inflation in terms of uh uh poverty in the UK and, and obviously with whatever is happening now they're predicting that uh, you know inflation is still going to go up it's going to create an even bigger uh divide between rich and poor and yeah. you know uh 
God forbid, you know, we might see even more children uh, in, 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 in poverty by the end of year, two years. Absolutely. And I mean, the the measures that families are going to, I mm. mean, we, we're talking about marrying off their children at, at a young age just to have one, one less, less person at home. Yeah. Um, that's something we used to hear from third world countries. Exactly. Yeah. Right. This is not something that has ever happened here. And that's not something that that's supposed to be happening anywhere in the world. People also thinking twice, you know, about yeah. having children exactly. because how exactly. you know how are they going to provide for them? Yeah. That's that's Absolutely. again uh, something that that is on people's mind. Of course, we know Islam says that you shouldn't worry about that, yeah. but of course, uh, you can understand that the 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 situation is such that it it does uh, it is something that comes to the mind of people. Now, obviously, aside from London, Manchester, and Birmingham. Uh, these these cities also are affected by uh, rising costs and housing costs again uh, is is a big issue. Um, in fact, uh, uh, you know that housing cost uh, results in in rising child poverty rates as well. And there is a lack of housing as well. We have talked about this <coughs> as well on the program, where people want to rent homes, but there is not enough you know for 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 them to yes. to find uh, yes. find places and. Of course, in London, the rents are, oh, you yeah. know, yes. through the roof. Um, previously, the uh, extra support from the government during COVID crisis does appear to have affected the figures positively in most areas. Uh, this shows that change is possible and these levels of child poverty do not have to be uh, normal. Uh, this is uh, what Joseph uh, Howe, um, who is chair of the um, End Child Poverty Coalition, says... Uh, 30% of children in a typical UK classroom live in poverty. Many are unable to afford school uniforms and school supplies. And then we also talked about, uh, you know, uh, uh, free school meals as well. That mm -hmm. also has been a, a huge talking point. Mm -hmm. um, children's experience of poverty also leads to then bullying and feeling of uh, uh, exclusion as they may have fewer friends and less access to social activities uh, than other children. Uh, such as school events or trips or things outside of it. So yeah. it does uh, have a wider effect as well. Absolutely. I mean, due to such experiences, um, there are obviously negative health and social consequences during childhood, which can obviously continue and, 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 and then they have an effect on on later stages of life. Um, the um, RCPCH states that child poverty can result in multiple outcomes, such as poor physical health, linked to chronic conditions and uh, obesity, mental health problems, experiences of stigma and bullying, ac um, academic underachievement, mm. employment difficulties, and social deprivation, etc. So, so many issues that one might face or issues that we are probably seeing on, in, in certain people around us actually stem from when they were children, when they were going through a tough childhood. So that's obviously where we as a nation, especially those in authority, have to make sure that we can create some sort of um, sort of just society mm. where everyone has access to the, um, at least to the sort of minimum um, standard of life where every child has access to, to, to um, decent food, decent clothing, um, decent education, something that they can build on uh, in in future, yeah. right? Otherwise, we, this this um, gap that we are talking about between 
the rich and those that are not doing well is big today it will be much bigger in 20 years and that will just keep on growing yeah yeah that is a, a great concern um in the holy quran we also read uh, and slay not your children for fear of poverty it is we who provide for you and them chapter 6 verse 152 so a reassurance from god almighty uh, about that um, however protection and well-being of children uh, you know comes before material things and uh, uh, we as a society as we just said uh, we have to ensure that children have the best upbringing <coughs> and also that they are provided with the means for their education and progress now we did talk about child marriage as well which is uh, which could be a result of uh, of uh, poverty uh, child poverty uh, specifically um, and and this happens when the child is under the age of 18, of course, and it also takes place without the free or valid consent of one or both parties involved, either due to physical or emotional pressure. It can res also result from awareness of financial pressure. Uh, according to Action Aid, more than 250 million women alive today were married before their 15th birthday, many against their will and often with such uh, circumstances that they were marrying older men. Uh, when married at young age, uh, girls are also at risk of violence, domestic abuse, and multiple violation of uh, or violations of their rights, and they are robbed of their childhood in the process. Now, child marriage also affects boys, mm. right? But uh, to a lesser degree than girls, the 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 prevalence of child marriage among boys is just one sixth of that among young girls. Um, child marriages are not always due to poverty as many traditions allow or even encourage marrying of young girls. Um, this results from gender inequality due to a traditionally um, a traditional sort of society where girls come second to boys and mm. education for girls is not seen as a worthwhile investment. But again, this is not something that we are dealing with here in the UK. Um, over here, I think it, it is... It is equal between yeah. boys and girls. Yeah. Everyone understands the, the importance of, of, of education, of, of dealing both boys and girls in, in the same way. Now, m many girls are also uh, um, abducted into marriage and nothing is done to bring justice. Um, UNICEF warns that before the COVID-19 pandemic, more than 100 million girls were expected to marry before their 18th birthday in the next decade. Now up to 10 million girl, more girls will be at risk of becoming child brides as a result of the pandemic. Mm. And of course, here in the UK, we have that limit of, of 18 of, yeah. of marriage. So, um, of course, um, these are the situations that we have uh, today. Of course, in, in many countries, uh, this is uh, something that children are, you know, exposed to uh, without their uh, consent. <coughs> Uh, World Vision teaches children's rights in order to empower children and prevent child marriages from happening. Um, education support is also provided as children and as their families are encouraged to choose education over the tradition of child marriage. Um, and uh, the situation obviously is worse in some countries than others. Um, in, in Afghanistan, for example, the situation is uh, of such that uh, you could call it a humanitarian catastrophe. Um, ever since the Taliban took control in Afghanistan, uh, it is reported that many children are facing extreme hunger, exploitation, lack of education, um, endless disease outbreaks and premature deaths as well. 
uh, about 19 million children and adults are facing severe food shortages resulting in starvation and increasing vulnerability to disease um you know afghanistan is a war torn uh, country mm. and uh, you know mistaking explosive uh, uh, remnants of war for um uh, you know uh, just for for some something to play with obviously kids they are innocent they sometimes don't know mm. um hundreds of children have been killed injured or left disabled because of you know exploded uh, grenades or, or you know uh, bombs that or mines that that were there already um in se- september uh, 2022 um an attack at a tuition uh, center in kabul um, killed dozens of people most of them were female students highlighting the increasing risks uh which uh, students are facing who are trying to gain education and improve their lives i mean it's it's so sad that some people who are you know extremists are mm. limiting their own people and preventing their own people from gaining education especially yeah. uh, females yeah and that obviously we have talked about this many times here on voice of islam that it has got nothing at all to do with islamic teaching islam Absolutely. in fact we we talked about it didn't we that the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said that uh, seeking education is obligation on yes. on every man and every man and woman has to seek some kind of education or knowledge right mm-hmm. and then these people are uh, you know uh, preventing uh, girls from seeking education going to schools i mean you look after the passing of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam um how were the the companions seeking knowledge right it was through the wife of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam aisha radhiyallahu anha mm. right she was a teacher she, she was a teacher mm. she was teaching the muslim men she was teaching the most educated um companions about religion right that is the prime example we have teach your women so that they can later on teach the coming generations and they can become a source of guidance and light for the for, for the future generations yeah. right um we 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 can't just um completely deny education because w- w- what's that going to bring if a woman doesn't have the right education she cannot pass that on to her children and her children will then grow up to be the the, the same people that basically stop women from gaining education in the first place and that circle will keep repeating itself whereas as you rightly said islam encourages uh, seeking knowledge <clears throat> as as we also had uh, a clip of the fourth caliph of the community in the first hour that every word of wisdom is 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 actually um something that belongs to muslims and we should try and gain as much knowledge and wisdom as we can so how how can these people possibly um deprive girls or or even boys at at some places of education is is this is this completely um I mean it's a self destruction isn't it of uh, it's, it's, it's of your own people I mean if yes. you're not going to have education then how are you going to progress Absolutely. um so it's it's very sad um uh, about that situation um of course the poverty does not uh, help um and uh, of course as we talked about uh, you know that uh, uh, without education um then of course that affects the uh, ability to have uh, uh workforce it affects the ability to have uh, um you know some sort of infrastructure 
In addition, approximately 70% of the population does not have access to drinking water, which in turn results in a lot of health problems as well, especially among uh, younger children. So, um, you know, talking about um, the uh, children's inclusion um, and uh, child poverty in today's uh, discussion of our second hour, you can get in touch as well. 0208-687-7878 is the number. You can also tweet at uh, Voice of Islam UK if you wish to send in um, any uh, comments or if you want to check out our Instagram as well. We have all our uh, topics uh, discussed there as well. Um, so as we mentioned that uh, in Afghanistan, the uh, <coughs> girls uh, are sometimes banned from secondary education, even normal edu- earlier education. Um, after the takeover of Taliban last August, uh, it is reported, and obviously we're, we're going with those reports, that thousands of secondary school girls uh, were ordered to stay home, reversing years of progress uh, for gender equality. Uh, the lack of female teachers, especially in rural schools, and only 16% of Afghanistan's schools being girls only, and with many of them lacking proper sanitation facilities, um, other facilities resulting in lack of safety and therefore lack of attendance as well. Therefore, families hesitate to send girls to school even if they have the opportunity to do so. Uh, insecurity, poverty, cultural traditions, poor infrastructure, inadequate learning materials and a lack of qualified teachers are continuing to uh, hinder children's um, access to education. And then, of course, on, th- on top of that, natural disasters such as flood, earthquakes and landslides are also were, um, you know, making the situation worse for children. I mean, similarly, in Pakistan as well, mm-hmm. uh, you know, mm-hmm. we saw the floods uh, cause so much devastation. And of course, all of these things not only have uh, an effect on the uh, economy um, as a whole, but I think it has more effect on children or their future uh, than, than, than adults. Obviously, everybody gets affected, but I think children, the next generation is the one who really suffer. Um, you see, the Prophet Muhammad sallam, may peace and blessing of, of Allah be upon him, says that treat your children fairly, um, and he said that even twice, which is um, reported in Sunan Nasai. Now, poverty in sort of war-torn countries leads to child labour, right? And when child labour fails, girls are married and taken out of schools and it becomes a never-ending cycle. I mean, this is something which we talked about earlier as well, that we need to break this cycle in in order to to get somewhere, in order to improve as society, in, in order to success as society. Um, an, an entire generation of Afghan children are youth and, and youth are growing up without opportunities to learn. Recent assessments indicate that more than a third of children have been exposed to psychological distress due to the loss of family and community members and the constant risk of death and injury. Now, children orphaned in the war were taken <coughs> in by relatives but treated as work slaves and education was not prioritised. Uh, the rights of children are clearly not as protected as they need to be, and it is essential that immediate support is provided to prevent the worst outcomes. Concerning vulnerable children, especially orphans, the Holy Quran states, and they ask thee concerning the orphans, say, promotion of their welfare is an act of great goodness. Right. 
020-687-7878 is the number two call. We're going to uh, listen to uh, an interview we did with one of our guests on this. Uh, we spoke to Samantha Mort uh, from UNICEF, Chief of Communication, Advocacy and Civil Engagement in Afghanistan. And um, this is what uh, Samantha had to say. Um, and we speaking about this, uh, th- th- this situation as well. So poverty and neglect are issues that affect children globally and safe spaces aren't always available. Um, so how important is it to just raise awareness regarding um, you know, children's human rights and how does UNICEF um, help to provide the support that children need? Thank you. And thank you for keeping Afghanistan in the global spotlight because the children here desperately need uh, everybody's uh, support. You're absolutely right. Um, It is critical for us all to raise awareness of the rights of children um, in every country globally every single day. It's a very active uh, process. And we do that so that every child um, can grow up happy, healthy, and able to realize her or his uh, full potential. And in Afghanistan, where there are, you know, 15 million children in desperate uh, need of humanitarian support, this is really, really important. Um, Not just in Afghanistan, but in many countries around the world. Children often don't have the the knowledge or know-how to raise their voices. They don't know what platforms to use. Some are too scared to speak up about what is happening to them. So in in those cases, UNICEF is is there to be their voice and to amplify their messages to the world. And that's what we're doing um, here in Afghanistan. We work with the de facto authorities um, to raise awareness of children's rights. We advocate for policies to support children um, so that they get the services that uh, they need, whether that's medical care or or education or clean water and sanitation. And we work with them to realize the rights as they are enshrined in the Convention on the Rights of the Child, um, which was the Universal Charter signed by almost all countries in 1989. Um, And that includes things like, you know, our our children being registered at birth so that they can have access to services for the rest of their life? Are they getting life-saving vaccines? Um, are they getting the education that they need to, to build their futures? Um, or are they being exploited, you know, are they being protected from exploitation and abuse? In the case of, of, of Afghanistan, that includes things like early marriage and, and child labor. So what we're doing is that we're we're working with the authorities, the governments all over the world um, to build the capacity of, of the staff um, in the governments and, and in, the, in, in the partners uh, around the, the country. Um, is it an easy job? No, it's not an easy job, but UNICEF will, will never give up. Um, wherever there is a child in need, uh, we'll, we'll be there. I mean, yeah, like you say, of course, it's not an easy job, but nonetheless, I think that's what makes it all the more necessary. Um, and, and you mentioned um, the fact that, you know, unfortunately, sometimes the issue is that children, um, you know, partly just because maybe they're just so young, but also, you know, if they're not in a safe space, if they don't have the access to the, the technology, just for general fear, they might not um, 
kind of be able to amplify their own voices or know how to do that. And also a lot of it comes down to the fact that they might not even know their own rights, um, especially if they've kind of, I, I imagine, grown up when where all they've seen is exploitation and you know abuse of their human rights. They might not know there's a possibility for anything different. And that comes down to education a lot, which you know yeah. would lead me to my next question. So um, now in Afghanistan, um, education has been halted for many children due to extreme poverty. Um, so how does UNICEF, um, sorry, how does UNICEF help to tackle this issue of um, children's rights and their access to education, um, especially for young girls who are unable to escape vulnerable situations um, due to their lack of education? or lack of formal education, perhaps? Yeah, so um, this this is a really packed <laughs> question. You're right, poverty is certainly one of the reasons that education, education has halted for some children in Afghanistan, but it's not the only reason. Um, but I'll come to that later. I'll talk about poverty uh, first. Um, you'll be aware that Afghanistan remains one of the world's worst humanitarian crises, um, but unfortunately it is no longer in, in the headlines. Um, in a country of around 40 million people, 65% of Afghans cannot meet their, their most um, basic needs right now, and that means that they cannot put nutritious meals on the table for their children, they cannot pay their bills, they cannot pay their debts, they cannot afford, you know, fuel to burn. It's it's currently minus one in Kabul tonight, um, and there are too many families around the country that don't have enough money to to stay warm. Um, you know, I was in in uh, Herat uh, last week, and and people were telling me again that at least two meals of the day are bread and tea that is all they can afford um so that's part of the reason the un is here we're supporting around 28 million people over half of the country um, with healthcare, with nutrition with cash assistance uh, and with food um so although we don't have data we do know anecdotally as we travel around the country that Poverty is driving families to make heart-wrenching decisions, like pulling children out of school to work. Um, you know, when I was in Harat in the West last week, I was talking to a family whose, whose child was working in a bakery and he was paid not in money. He was 12 years old. He was paid not in money, but he got 10 pieces of bread uh, for his work there. Um, and of course, That's parents, absolutely heartbreaking. Terrible. And of course, his parents would prefer for him to be in school, um, like any parent. But they don't have the choice. Same with the same with the parents who are exchanging their daughters for dowries years before the the, the girls might otherwise get married. Um, and of course, that puts the girls at greater risk of of exploitation um, and abuse. So, you know, one of the things that UNICEF is doing is that we identify the most vulnerable families and the most vulnerable communities, and we go in and we talk to them. We raise awareness of um, the dangers of early marriage. We, we try to tell them that girls are safest and best protected when they're with their families. And we, we advocate strongly that the girls um, should should finish high school to give them you know the best chance in in life, um, and then in many cases because 
uh, there is such uh, terrible poverty across the country, we give those families and those communities cash transfers so that we are alleviating the pressure they're under um, and removing the need to take the child out of school or, or, or exchange the, the, the daughter for dowry. Um, but it is a it's a work in, in progress. It's a huge country. The needs are great. They're getting greater. And um, a lot of our donors don't understand the value of cash transfers. You know, they still prefer to give impoverished families uh, goods in kind, you know, shoes or blankets or, or clothes. And what UNICEF is trying to help people better understand is that giving the most impoverished families cash gives them choice. It's a much more dignified form of aid because a lot of the families tell us, you know, if you give us a coat, I really need money for medicine. Or if you give me shoes, I haven't eaten all day long, you know. So money is, is really important for these families right now. Um, and if I can go back to, to the beginning as well and, and just reiterate why education has halted for some children. You know, last, um, last August when the, the Taliban seized power, um, they they have prevented about a million girls uh, from going back to high school. And obviously UNICEF is deeply concerned that these girls are being denied their right to a high school education and the opportunity to build their lives and, and careers and contribute uh, productively to their country. Um, not We're not just worried about the, the lack of their education. We're worried that they are languishing at home right now. Um, they're being deprived of their friends, of, of conversation, of play. They're worrying about their futures. And, and we know that this is fueling a mental health crisis um, across the country. Um, but UNICEF is doing our best uh, to support these girls. Uh, we see a huge demand for education, not just amongst the girls, but their parents, amongst some religious leaders, um, the community elders, they all want um, learning opportunities for their girls. And so we're trying our very best to support them um, in doing that, whilst we continue to advocate with the de facto authorities to get children um, back into school. Mm -hmm. And certainly, again, a very difficult but noble mission. Um, one aspect which um, can be easy to neglect, but is vitally important to consider is that the impact all of this must be having on, on just the day-to-day -day mental health of the people facing this, you know, whether it's, in, you know, just episodes of depression, anxieties of, you know, kind of like, where's my next meal coming from? Can I keep my children warm? Things like that. So, you know, very complex, uh, you know, post-traumatic disorders, things like that. So what kind of support can be offered to children in terms of um, access to mental health and, and well-being support services? Well, it's a really interesting question, especially in the context of a country such as Afghanistan. So let me start with the with the youngest you know, children. Um, UNICEF has for a long time um, under our child protection program had what we call child friendly spaces. Now, these can be rooms in, in homes or um, community centers. They can even be tents that we that we winterize to keep warm. And these are spaces that are often filled with with 
soft um, soft play uh, and and toys and they've got trained counsellors and social workers and they're places where children can come um, especially if they've experienced some kind of trauma in, in Afghanistan recently we've had an earthquake we've had terrible floods where children have lost everything so children can come to these um, child-friendly spaces um, they're safe they're protected they um, they can play they can be with other children their own age and then the counsellors can help them to process what they've been through um, and one of the things that UNICEF is doing is that we're increasingly training more uh, social workers so that the social workers can work um, in the child-friendly spaces and refer the children on to other services if, if they need that but um, for for parents because parents are also under a huge amount of pressure and and older children um awareness of mental health issues in afghanistan is still growing um as i said in a country of about 40 million people we've got 3.9 million children and caregivers right now who are um, accessing some form of mental health or psychosocial support but there's still stigma like like there's stigma in Britain and in so many other countries around the world um, and when I talk to psychologists and doctors there's an expectation still that mental health will be treated with medication instead of, of counselling. Um, in Herat uh, last week I visited the country's only child and adolescent mental health clinic in the country. Um, and given the challenges that Afghanistan has faced over uh, the last you know, four decades, it, it's extraordinary that there's only one of these facilities. Um, when I asked uh, the, the psychologists and, and the only child psychiatrist, the country only has one child psychiatrist, what were the, the issues um, that they were seeing most of. They were talking about children, particularly girls, being anxious about being out of school, um, about uh, not being able to fulfill, fulfill their ambitions. Uh, parents and, and older children extremely worried about poverty um, and feeling huge pressure um, to provide, particularly adolescent boys who, who find themselves sometimes as the head of the household at the age of 12, 13, 14, and drop out of school to try to earn money or they try to run away to a neighboring country in the hope of you know, finding a job and sending money back. Um, so there's all kinds of, of challenges and pressures that these children um, are under. There's very limited medical uh, expertise to deal with it. As I said, there's one child psychiatrist in Afghanistan and uh, she, she is phenomenal. And she's busy training psychologists and doctors and social workers and parents um, to encourage uh, children to come and seek help and, and to say to parents that there's no shame, there's no stigma. Um, but it's clear that there's a lot more to be done. We need a lot more investment in mental health services um, so that we have these kind of clinics in, in each of the, the regions, if not each of the provinces. Um, a few weeks ago, I was in Daikundi in the central part of Afghanistan, and we were visiting a European Union funded project where women were being trained to be tailors. 
And I can't tell you after, you know, 12 years of working in UNICEF, the joy that these girls uh, who can no longer go to school, um, the, the joy that they had in learning a craft, in learning a skill, in being able to earn money, in being able to run a business, um, in setting up a shop uh, and providing a service that felt useful to the community. Um, and, and I thought, you know, on one hand, you can have a mental health clinic, you can have a psychologist, um, but what the women of Afghanistan need right now is something to do. And so this skills training is really important. And, and you know, if there's an opportunity for more investment in that, uh, to help these women who've lost their jobs, who, who are now confined to their homes, then we would very much uh, welcome that. Yeah, thank you. I mean, yeah, certainly I, I'd imagine it is a massive, like a need for like a blend of both um, mm -hmm. kind of counselling and medical attention, but also actually addressing the material circumstances and giving, uh, for, you know, as you say, women the opportunity to be able to stand on their own two feet. Um, yeah. And, and it def definitely sounds like, like an amazing opportunity that UNICEF has been able to provide for some of these women by giving them this um yeah. these classes to be able to learn learn to be tailors um yeah and talking about those material circumstances and those conditions um you know obviously the, the problem of starvation is massively increasing like you said you know that there were floods earlier in the year uh, mm -hmm. with kind of like energy issues and fuel um or shortages um I, you know I can imagine that you know they're all contributing to to this other factor as well um you know and similarly there's outbreaks and very dangerous diseases um and you know it's all unfortunately compiling in high mortality rates for children so mm -hmm. um what kind of support does unicef um provide to you able to tackle that you're right i mean malnutrition is a massive problem right now in afghanistan there are around 850,000 children um, at risk of severe acute malnutrition and that means that if they if they don't receive urgent treatment then um, they are at risk of of dying um, a child who has severe acute malnutrition is incredibly uh, susceptible to, to diseases, as you mentioned. And what we've seen a lot of this year because of, um, because of poverty, because of the floods, because of the earthquake, is, is outbreaks of um, waterborne uh, diseases such as acute watery diarrhea and, and cholera. Um, and of course, you know, if, if, if children experience this, and they, they often don't just have it once, they will have it repeatedly, on a malnourished body, they get increasingly uh, weak, and it, it's a, unfortunately a very vicious uh, circle. Um, in addition to the floods and the earthquake, Afghanistan is also, you know, victim to to climate change, and we're now experiencing the worst drought that we've had for nearly four decades, and that's also compromising the water quality which is fueling um, the, the spread of disease as well. So, you know, what UNICEF is doing is, you know, a range of programs, really. We 
go into communities and we give water purification tablets. So, for example, in the floods, when the water systems broke and, and the water available was very polluted, we brought in water purification tablets. We truck water uh, in, in uh, lorries to the most affected communities. Um, and then in order to, to, to try to keep communities where they are, where their services and support systems are, we build solar powered water systems um, as well, because that's the that's the most sustainable um, and cost effective way of, of bringing uh, water.